Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 150, and it's coming out on March 28th, 2019, which is baseball's opening day. And in honor of that, uh, I have as a guest, Eric Nadell, the voice of the Texas Rangers. Uh, We had a conversation last summer, and... uh, and I've held on to it because I thought, well, it'll it'll be a good timing to do it now. Now, of course, he talked about a few things that have come and gone, but for the most part, the entire conversation is about stuff that's just ongoing. And so, you know, it, it's fine that that I held on to it and put it out now. At least, hopefully, it's fine. Um, Eric does a lot of charity stuff. He's involved with mental health advocacy, uh, homeless kids. Um, uh, there he does stuff in Cuba with the music and uh, program and getting stuff over there, uh, things like you know uh, food and necessities, clothing, and all of that. And we we talk about all that. Lots of links. Again, please check out the links page on HeyHumanPodcast.com. He's also got a book coming out, and the link is to that too. Uh, the book is called, or it came out. Pardon me, it came out in November. It's called Limerick Whimsical Rhymes from the Voice of the Texas Rangers. So Eric is famous for his limericks, and uh, was convinced to put together a book of them. And it's illustrated and a lot of fun. He's got other books out as well. And again, links page Hey Human Podcast. You will find all that stuff, along with uh, the charities that um, we talk about. What, what, what? So, okay, this week, this past week, I have been uh, doing all sorts of crazy stuff, but I have been relaxing by my guilty pleasures of Netflix and Amazon, and I just wanted to share, oh my goodness, okay, so I saw Velvet Buzzsaw with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Renee Russo, and um, a cast of others. Uh, It's so fun and creepy and wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And then the movie, or sorry, the series Afterlife with um, Ricky Gervais. Oh my gosh, loved it. It was very poignant, very beautiful, funny, sad, all the things. I really, really enjoyed it. And then I watched Flowers, and you know, it's funny, um, people either love or hate that show, from what I can understand, but I really uh, enjoyed it. It's dark. It's very dark and weird, but... uh, but I thought it was cool. So I just wanted to share that with you. That one is called Flowers. And it's a little hard to get through in the beginning. Uh, I recommend getting to the very end. Um, and I have questions. I mean, I, I have theories about... Uh, we had to, I don't want to spoil anything, but I do have theories about that show. <laughs> and I want to talk to somebody about it. So if you watch it, email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com, so we can talk about it and what you think it means and what I think it means. Because... I don't know. It was really interesting. Um, Something coming up for me on May 19th, I will be performing improv in Seattle at the Pocket Theater. So if you are within the Seattle range and you are listening to my voice now, um, check that out on May 19th. Uh, It'll be at 7 p.m. Tickets uh, uh, will be for sale upcoming. They're not out yet, but I just wanted to put it on your, your radar. So... Other stuff, of course, rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. It's super helpful, and, uh, and you know, I would just appreciate it regardless. Um, the Amazon portal uh, to support Hey Human so that I don't have to do commercials. It's ad-free. Um, you go to the heyhumanpodcast.com website, and the Amazon portal is right there. Click on that. Shop Amazon like you normally would. And, you know, it helps support Hey Human a little bit here and there. It's uh, it's a good thing. Okay, so what else? Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. I mentioned that. Um, links page, I, I mentioned that because I'm on top of those things. Um, and then, of course, SusanRuth.com is my personal website where you can find my music and artwork and all that kind of stuff. So that's about that. Uh, definitely uh, check out Eric's books and... And uh, his his new one, The Whimsical Rhymes from the Voice of the Texas Rangers, Lim Eric. Uh, it's a very fun little play on words there. Lim Eric. Uh, <laughs> and, oh, I'm going to be, I don't know who next week's guest is going to be right now because I'm going to be on the road for the next few weeks. So it's going to just be whatever my whimsical brain decides. I, I'm not that um, together that I can just sort of whip it out right now. So... 
You'll know when I know, baby. Woohoo! All right, here we go. Eric, welcome to Hey Human. Thanks for having me. It's an interesting story that you have, and I'm. You have a, a close relationship with the people of Cuba. Is that right? Well, I've been going there off and on for well a number of years. You know, as our laws have permitted. Uh, I've tried to find the ways to legally be able to go there. And now, actually, I'm able to go there to do professional research. There are so many baseball players now uh, who are playing in the major leagues from Cuba that it's actually made it rather easy for me to go legally. I've also started taking groups of people there uh, on educational tours, which is another legal way to go. But I went there for the first time in the mid-'90s to basically cover an international baseball tournament that was being played in Havana. And I met the people down there who do what I do, who are baseball announcers, baseball writers, and, you know, was amazed to find out that like everybody else who works for the Cuban government, they earn about $20 a month. And somehow they're able to survive. You know, the government gives everybody enough rice and beans that nobody starves to death, but just about everybody's poor. Yeah. Uh, unless they're getting help from relatives abroad or friends abroad or have some other way of making money, which back in the 90s wasn't even legal in Cuba. Now it is. You can rent out a room in your house or rent out your whole apartment for that matter if you want to. And you can start a rest or privately owned restaurant. Those sort of things uh, weren't really legal back then, but they are now. But in any event, everybody needs money just to have what we consider to be the basics of life. So... I started going down there from time to time to bring things to the people I know in Cuba uh, for their families, whether it was shoes or vitamins or aspirin or pencils and notebooks for their kids to use in school. I'm Literally anything you could walk down the aisle in Walgreens and grab off the shelves they need. It's a luxury there. Shampoo. When I started going there, toothpaste was a luxury in Cuba. So, you know, I started going there from time to time and bringing things down for the people that I know uh, just to help them get through everyday life. And got connected with a lot more people down there so that I've been able to be involved in, you know, a number of different, uh, number of different causes, if you will. And I've also... Um, found out that there's a real love for American music down there. So for the last few years, I've been going down there with American musicians, arranging concerts for them in Cuba, and bringing down some of their fans along with them to see the concerts down there, and also to enjoy all the different forms of, of Cuban music. So um, it's a it's something to me that's just absolutely incredible that a country that's 90 miles from our shores is basically a third world country and even successful professional people there are living in extreme poverty so going back to when you began that uh that journey and as you were falling in love with the people in the place did you did you have issues with trying to bring those things into the country because i have some cuban friends and they said that back in the day that most things would get seized. You know, if people tried to mail them at things like toy, even toilet paper, soap, feminine products, all this stuff, and they, it would just end up in a warehouse somewhere and they never would see it. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't very successful in trying to send things down either. Um, I would just go down there with a reasonable amount of baggage for an individual who was going to stay for two weeks but my bags would be completely full of things that I wasn't going to bring home. You know, the clothes that I would bring down there, I would leave in Cuba and whatever else I packed in my suitcases. You know, I wasn't carrying the sort of quantities of things that would cause the, you know, Cuban immigration or customs officials to, to pull me over. You know, I wasn't doing anything illegal in bringing in mass quantities of things. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky situation, isn't it? It is. And, you know, the, the good thing about going with groups is I encourage all the people in my group to bring down whatever things are most in need in Cuba at the time. So just, you know, throw in along with your, the clothes in your suitcase, you know, throw in uh, a bunch of peanut butter or a bunch of toilet paper or, you know, whatever the need is 
at that particular time. There's always a need for food. I mean, when I ask my friends in Cuba what they want the most, uh, when I come down this time, it always starts with peanut butter, um, tuna, if you can bring down those foil packets of tuna, you know, that where they're basically able to um, be non-perishable, if you will. Um, that's where it always starts because they just don't get, you know, enough food. Does immigration tend to look the other way? I mean, not a lot of people normally travel with packets of tuna fish, so... I don't think that's... That's not really what they're looking for. <clears throat> you know, the Cuban immigration officials are looking for appliances on which people have to pay taxes. You know, if you're coming down there with flat-screen TVs and computers and air conditioners, which people do, it's perfectly legal. You just have to pay the import tax on it. Ah. I'm not bringing anything in, you know, that that would cause, you know, any concern. If that's the, the case, why do you think it is that things like foodstuffs get caught up in customs and don't get sent to the people they're supposed to go to? Well, the, the problem is with sending things, not with carrying things. Everything that's going into Cuba is going on my person. It's yeah. going in my suitcase. Yeah. But why is it such an issue to send, do you think? Part of it is the actual delivery system oh. in Cuba. Like everything else in, in Cuba, and I assume it's this way in most communist countries, everything's inefficient. And because everybody is so poor, there's a lot of theft involved in any system like that. That makes sense. And there are ways of sending things safely to Cuba now, but they're very expensive. Mm. And for the most part, they involve hand-to-hand -hand delivery. You know, someone you can, you know, there are agencies in Tampa and Miami who will arrange this. They have people who work for them, Cuban-Americans, yeah. who go to Cuba on a regular basis to see their families. And while they go down there, they'll bring a packet for you of whatever you're bringing to your Cuban friends and hand deliver that packet to the people in Cuba. And that's the best way of getting them, getting the things there. Again, you pay some more, but at least you know that it's going to get there. It goes for money, too. You can, you know, you can send money that way. Yeah, that may, yeah. Um, where did the the intersection of baseball and Cuba begin? Because it clearly somebody had to have the bright idea in the beginning. <laughs> um, like a lot of other things, it happened because of United States servicemen being stationed in Cuba. And we're going back into the 1800s now, oh. where baseball got introduced to Cuba by American military personnel playing baseball in Cuba. And in fact, the oldest baseball stadium in the world that's still in use is in Cuba. And they've been having baseball games there since sometime in the late 1800s. Oh. And it, they still have baseball games in the stadium. It's pretty dilapidated. Uh, they do a minor amount of renovation on it because it also houses the Cuban Baseball Hall of Fame Museum. So they keep it in semi-respectable shape. And uh, that's how long the tradition of baseball in, in Cuba is. But, you know, Cuban baseball players before Castro took over um, were free to come and play in the United States and then return to Cuba. But for many years, uh, most of the Cuban players couldn't play in the major leagues because they were black. And until Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1945, all those Cuban players who would come to the United States would play in the Negro Leagues. Eventually, they began playing in the major leagues if they were good enough or the organized minor leagues. But then in 1959, all of that stopped. You know, Castro took over and because of the bad relations between the Cuban government and the U.S. government from that point on and our trade embargo on Cuba, uh, it became illegal for Cuban players to come here and return to their home countries. So that they pretty much had to make a decision. If they were going to come to the U.S., they couldn't go back. And, you know, it's unfortunate because the Cuban players who are playing in the major leagues now uh, had to cut ties with Cuba in order to come over here. And hopefully that system will get changed sometime soon. But as long as there's a U.S. Uh, trade embargo against Cuba, you know, that's not going to change. Yeah, I imagine for the little kids growing up in Cuba, that's probably, that's their, their ticket, maybe. They think, oh gosh, if I can just 
get into baseball and get out of here. I mean, is that a, a, an undercurrent that goes on? Uh, not that much in Cuba. It's more so the case in the Dominican Republic, um, where that has been the route out for so many players. Um, I'm sure there are some in Cuba who are thinking that too, especially now that there is exposure to our baseball in Cuba. It used to be that the government pretty much had a lockdown on any news about American baseball, but that's not the case anymore. They know what's going on over here. Um, they even have uh, major league games on TV there, which they didn't used to have. So probably more and more kids are thinking that way. But honestly, uh, in Cuba now, uh, for kids... Uh, soccer has become more popular than baseball. It's so much easier to play. Just you know, just as here, all you need is a ball, and and some space, and you can play soccer. Yeah. You don't need gloves. You don't need bats. You don't need balls. You don't need as much space um, to play soccer as as you do to play baseball. Has were you always enamored with baseball, even as a little kid? Yeah, all the sports, but baseball more than anything else. You know, I grew up in Brooklyn. And we played stickball in the schoolyard and punchball in the street. And we had, when I was growing up, we had the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then they moved to Los Angeles, which was just horrible for all of us. It was traumatizing. Uh, and we still had the Yankees, though. So we had Major League Baseball. And then eventually the Mets came along. And I played Little League Baseball from the time I was i was actually too young to play. And my, my dad lied and got me in early because I wanted to play so much. And I played up through high school. And, you know, then played in softball leagues for many years after that. But it was always the sport that I enjoyed um, more than any other one. Yeah, I suppose that made it much easier to, to be able to call, you know, to be able to do the announcing of the game, too, having that, that passion. And... Yeah, most of, the, most of the guys I know who do this for a living were like me. You know, they were, they were kids who played baseball morning till night when they were kids and then when they weren't playing they were playing these baseball board games of various types and they were watching and listening to games at night and even doing fake broadcasts from the time they were little kids um we were all kind of geeky in that same way with very few exceptions we all had the same background yeah are you noticing just with how long you've been a part of the sport um, is there any kind of a drop off? Because I always think of baseball, you know, the American game. And I've been to, I've, I've watched baseball on television. It's nothing like being there in real life. There's something about being in a in the audience of a baseball game, where even though the innings are going on and on, and, and there's a lot of time, there's a lot more time there that just the people and the hot dogs and the, you know, I don't know. There's this something it's, it's inexplicable, but there's some vibe going on. People are still really into it. You know, it's still a thing that connects fathers and sons and grandfathers. And there have been a number of changes in baseball over the last few years in the way the game is played that I don't think is really conducive to watching the game. Uh, it's made the game move more slowly, which I don't think is good. Things and, like like what? Uh, pitchers are taking more time between pitches. There are more pitching changes. So essentially there's more time within the game when nothing's going on. <laughs> a baseball game lasts on average a little over three hours. Yeah, the long. ball's actually in play. The ball's actually in play for about sixteen minutes. Really? Yeah. And the actual time of the game, the length of the game, keeps increasing, but the time the ball's in play doesn't, so the amount of dead time keeps increasing mm. because pitchers are taking more time between pitches. Batters are stepping out, which they're not supposed to do, in between pitches, stepping out of the batter's box. Each time a pitcher is changed, it takes a few minutes to get the new pitcher into the game and get them all warmed up. And, uh, you know, all of those things are kind of making the rhythm of baseball slower than I would like it to be. Do you think that's because they're trying to make room for more commercials? <laughs> um, th that's, a, that's a minor part of it. That is a part of it. Um, the breaks between innings are longer than they used to be. And then when a new pitcher comes into a game, they do want to be able to squeeze in a few commercials. But it, it's more the players than it is the extra commercials. Yeah. Maybe it's because there's so much money involved now. Everybody thinks it's so important 
that they have to give more thought to what pitch am I going to throw here. And the batter has to give more thought to what pitch is the pitcher going to throw me here. You know, all of those things uh, enter into it, I think. The stakes are so much higher now because there's so much money involved. Oh, it's so crazy. I, I read about the salaries these people get. I'm just blown away. It's so much money. It's nutty. And it doesn't make any sense, you know, just as it doesn't make sense for actors to get $20 million for a movie. And, you know, that's how baseball players see themselves they they are the entertainers sure. and they're the top 300 or 500 or however many it is in the major leagues entertainers in the world doing what they do and obviously the owners are making money or they wouldn't be paying the players these salaries the players are the talent they are the product so if that much money is being made they should be getting their share of it you know sure. i don't begrudge them that yeah it's it's crazy that I think, my God, what would I do with two hundred and nineteen million dollars? You know, that's <laughs> so crazy. When you were a little boy, who was your favorite baseball player, or, or a couple of baseball? Sandy Koufax was my guy. He was a kid who was from Brooklyn, not far from where I grew up, and he was and he was a you know he was a a gentleman. Um, he was a mensch, as you said in the Jewish neighborhoods back then. He was he was a he was a good boy, and he was somebody who we could all look up to. And he was amazing. He was the best pitcher in baseball for about five years until he blew out his arm. And he was he was head and shoulders above everybody else, you know, in my eyes. And when the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles, it was hard to get information on what he was doing because the Dodgers games started so late there was a three-hour time difference and so i would i would run to the candy store to get the afternoon newspaper when it would get delivered at noon and it would have the story of the dodgers game in los angeles the night before because the morning paper didn't have it uh the the deadlines were too early so i would literally wait at the candy store for the afternoon paper the new york post or the uh, then it was the the uh, world telegram to be delivered so I could see how many people Sandy Koufax struck out and you know what the details of the game were I was I was that committed to him and I've, I've met him since and I've been able to tell him this story and you know thank him for all the inspiration that, that he gave me and all the other kids in my neighborhood that must have meant a lot to him I'm sure yeah, he seemed to respond very positively to it. I'm sure I wasn't the first one who ever told him that. But probably one of the only ones who actually went on to have a career in baseball. And, you know, you know, and in my case, I got to tell him this story in Cooperstown at the Hall of Fame, you know, the year that I won the Ford Frick Award, you know, as like the broadcaster of the year. And he was there because all of the inductees from previous years come back on a Hall of Fame weekend. I was actually able to tell him that story that weekend and you know I think that meant a lot to him. Do you have a crazy baseball card collection? No, I, I had a card collection like just about any other kid when I was growing up and like most kids while I was in college my mom in a decluttering effort asked me if it was okay to get rid of my baseball cards that there was a neighbor kid, you know, across the street who really wanted them. And of course, yeah, if he wants the cards, let him have it. And then years later, I wished that I had had them. They were probably worth a lot of money. Yeah. That kid's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I had them back to the mid 50s where some of these cards, the design of the card, they looked like TV screens, old fashioned you know, wood grain TV screens. You know, those cards are worth a lot of money right now, but um, I hope he did something good with them. Yeah, maybe he gave them to his kids. You never know. I'm sure they got passed on to somebody who appreciates them. Yeah. Did you, when as integration into baseball was happening and Jackie Robinson, which, by the way, I saw the movie 42 on an airplane, and I was sobbing so hard that the poor flight <laughs> attendant had to keep bringing me tissues because I was just a wreck. So good. Um, but do you remember sort of the, the feeling around all that? Because it's this weird dichotomy, right? The, the sportsmanship and the camaraderie and America and this, that, and then here's this sort of other thing. How did you, how did you witness that personally? Well, I'm, I'm a little too young to have experienced it when it occurred. 
Um, when I was a kid growing up, uh, Jackie Robinson was still playing. Yeah. Uh, but he actually retired the year I started going to games. He retired. Um, but he was just the by, beginning. So the legacy of that, I mean, my, right, my by, yeah. By, this, by then, there were a lot of, um, a lot of African-American stars in the major leagues by, by the time I really started following it. Um, mm-hmm. Willie Mays was starring for the Giants, and Hank Aaron was, was just starting his career uh, with the Milwaukee Braves. So those guys were pretty established. So for me, it was more a matter of hearing the stories mm-hmm. um, and being told about it. And being in Brooklyn, of course, we all heard those stories. Yeah. In fact, when Jackie Robinson retired... Um, you know, he was no longer as good as he had been. And like most players, I'm sure he was debating whether or not to keep playing. And what happened was the Brooklyn Dodgers traded him to the hated rivals, the New York Giants. And he didn't think he could actually play for the Giants. He didn't think he could do it. And he retired rather than go play for the Giants. Wow. And there were other things involved in his decision, but that was like the final straw. If that's my only option to play... I'm not playing. I won't play for those guys. I just hate them too much. That's so interesting to me. I, I always wonder about that with sports. That when when you're on a particular team and you have the the rival, but then you see players get shuffled around in all the sports to different places, and you think, well, it's yeah. probably just when they're on, when they're on. But I guess not in Jackie's case, right? Well, it's and it's different now. Um, players now have a union. You know, back then they didn't. Mm. So the players now are, you know, they're more united and it doesn't matter what team you play for. You see players now before the games fraternizing with players on the other team, which is technically not even illegal. What? Um, Yeah, they're not supposed to because you're supposed to maintain uh, the image of, you know, hostility between the two teams. Um, nobody enforces that anymore. But back when I started watching baseball games, you would never see that. You would not see a Dodger player and a Giant player talking in the outfield, you know, before the game starts while they're both doing their stretching and, and whatever. And now you see it all the time. In particular, you see players from specific Latin American countries, you know, hanging around together before the games. You know, they're from their, the same hometown or they went to the same baseball academy and whatever it is. Or in recent years, really, in the case of Venezuela, um, which has become such a disaster mm-hmm. as a country, the baseball players from Venezuela are very much united in trying to help their country. And whenever they have an opportunity to get together with other Venezuelan players, you know, they tend to do so. You, you see that more than with players from other countries now. You know, those guys tend to hang together, stick together. They all have families who are in the same boat. You know, everybody's worried about their families there. And so it brings the players together regardless of what team they're playing for. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in my humble opinion, sports is about camaraderie first. So, and if you can do... Supposed to be, yeah. Yeah, and if you can do good in the world, you know, why wouldn't you? Makes sense. So yeah, did so by default, Texas Rangers your favorite team? Well, yeah. I mean, they signed my paycheck. Yeah. But more important, and I've been I've been here for forty years, and I'm so um, ingrained here with the fan base. Mm. You know, this team has been here since 1972 when they moved from Washington D.C. and they've never won the World Series. So we have long-suffering fans you know, who finally saw the Rangers get to the World Series in 2010 and 2011. In 2011, they came very close to winning. On two occasions, they were a strike away from winning the World Series and didn't get it done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm one of them. You know, we're all, we're all in this together. So, you know, I do have this feeling that... Um, the, the fandom of the Texas Rangers, you know, is a community. And we all went through this horrible experience together in 2011 where we thought we were about to win the World Series and we didn't. And it's, um, yeah, it's far more intense than any rooting interest that I've, you know, had before just as a fan. Yeah, you know, for- that's a real fan. It sticks, it sticks around, <clears throat> of course, even in the dark times. 
Yeah, and you know, if it's your team, and I see this in every city, you know, it's it's not just here. Uh, we were just in Seattle to finish the season. Their team hasn't even made the playoffs in 18 years, since 2001. It's the longest current drought in all of uh, professional sports. Uh, yet their fans, you know, that's their team. You know, you Seattle stick with them. A, they love their teams. The Seahawks. Yeah, you regain hope, and then yeah. it's wait till next year. And and it, it, one of the things about this job that I like the most is is meeting the people who are fans, regardless of what team it is, and seeing how intensely baseball affects them, mm-hmm. and and how the different types of people are attracted to baseball, and especially musicians. Um. There's some sort of link between musicians and baseball. I know so many musicians who wish they were baseball players and baseball players who wish they were rock stars. And, but there's something about the cerebral nature of baseball that makes musicians more inclined to be baseball fans than football fans or basketball fans or fans of any other sport. And... Um, you know, I'm constantly meeting more and more musicians who are into baseball through the musicians that I already know. Um, Rhett Miller, who's the lead singer of the old 97s mm. and is from Dallas, is a really good friend of mine, has introduced me over the years to some of his best friends who are baseball fans. And they, in turn, have introduced me to some of theirs. And the link goes on and on and on and on. Just this week for the first time, I got to meet Benjamin Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie, yeah. who's a fanatic Seattle Mariners fan, even wrote a song called Go Go Ichiro about <laughs> Ichiro Suzuki, the longtime star of the Mariners. And getting a chance to just hang around after a show and talk to him for a half an hour about baseball and his love of the Mariners and how he grew up listening to Dave Niehaus the announcer for the Mariners who's, you know, like I'm the Dave Niehaus of Texas. That's right. So it was exciting for him to get to talk to me. He never actually met Dave Niehaus, which is, you know, amazing to me. Um, but, you know, earlier this year I got to talk to Jason Isbell uh, about I love love of, his love of the Atlanta Braves. Yeah. And, you know, all of these guys, you, I did a set recently on our public radio station where I was the guest disc jockey and they asked me to, to just play songs about baseball. And here's Warren Zevon with a song about Bill Lee and um, Bob Dylan with a song uh, about Catfish Hunter. And Eddie Vedder with all of his songs about the Cubs and the Dropkick Murphys with all their songs about the Red Sox and James Taylor with his Angels of Fenway song. It's, it's unbelievable the deep connection between so many talented musicians and baseball. And I'm always wondering about these people. These guys are geniuses for me anybody who can you know create art like that Mm. and then at the same time sing and play a guitar and direct a band all at the same time yeah and these guys are wasting their mental energy on baseball (laughs) (laughs) and they say no you know that's that's their escape that's their entertainment and since it is escape that involves a lot of um a lot of uh strategy, nuance, it's much more appealing to them than some of these other just more brute, violent, physical sports. Sure. I, I also got just got a text saying there's going to be some sort of emergency alert at oh. 10 minutes after the hour. Oh. So, so be ready for be that. Be ready for that, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to go crazy. Um, does, yeah. Talk a little bit about the music and baseball event that you do. Um, well, I, I actually do... A, promote a few different musical events um, here in Dallas-Fort Worth for nonprofits, uh, And then in Cuba, some of the musicians that I know had been asking me to go to Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came up with the idea of taking this trip. The first one I did, I took Rhett Miller and Daphne Willis down there. I know and Daphne. Yeah. Fans, sure. She's great. And, and we took them down there and some of their fans, and they did some shows uh, in Havana. And we went to see different Cuban bands and hooked them up with some Cuban musicians. Daphne actually wrote a song with one of the top Cuban um, pop musicians. And then I did a similar trip with Ruthie Foster and Seth Walker uh, two years ago. And that trip got derailed somewhat. We did the trip, but they weren't allowed to play their concerts because Fidel Castro had just died. Mm. And the Cuban government imposed a 10-day moratorium basically on public fun. 
There were no concerts, no baseball, no nothing for 10 days. So we did the trip, but they didn't get to play. So we're planning to go back in February to give them a do-over mm. and let them actually play the shows there. But that all came out of my having started um, promoting concerts here in Dallas for nonprofits, which is how I got to know a lot of these musicians. Um, I work with an organization called Focus on Teens, which supports homeless teens who are actually attending schools. And I do a concert every year around my birthday to raise money and awareness for them. And Ruthie's one of the artists who uh, we've booked to play that concert in the past. That's how I got to know her. Daphne's played the concert as well. And Seth Walker's actually played that concert. And now I've expanded that and I'm working with uh, an amazing nonprofit restaurant in Dallas called Cafe Momentum, which hires juvenile detainees mm -hmm. when they come out of jail. Mm -hmm. It gives them an internship program for a year and trains them in every aspect of the restaurant business. At the end of the year, 80% of these kids get jobs with other restaurants. And their rate of recidivism is unbelievably low. It's about 10%, whereas the overall rate of recidivism for these kids is over 50%. Sure. Um, and the, the chef CEO of this restaurant, who's kind of devoted this portion of his life to this, instead of going and being a rock star chef somewhere and making millions of dollars, um, he's a big music fan. And he asked me if I can help him put together a monthly concert series and so we started doing that about a year ago. So once a month at Cafe Momentum, we do a family-style dinner with basically a house concert to follow. And so I've been able to kind of get back into, into booking music, which I used to do for a club in Dallas for a while, too, just for fun. But uh, I'm doing that now on a monthly basis and helping to raise this incredible place, Cafe Momentum, which has now spawned other similar restaurants in a few other cities. Yeah, we have one sort of like that here, for, but it's for adult uh, folks, adult homeless, actually, to help them get back on their feet. Um, yeah, and about half of these kids are homeless. Yeah. And it's, in, it's incredible. And they're coming to work with a smile on their face every day. And uh, it's just, it's wonderful. But we've wonderful. had... Uh, We've had a lot of success with the uh, with the concert series. So you're also a poet, a, a limerick writer, and then limericist or something like that. Yeah, when did, did that become something that tickled your fancy bone? I, I had a really good time with it when we first learned how to do it. I think I was in the eighth grade. I, for some reason, I, I really took to it. I was really good at it. And when I was broadcasting minor league sports, it was hockey spent a lot of time on buses, and I would occasionally amuse the players by writing limericks about them, uh, and while away time in the office writing limericks with my, with my co-workers. And what happened was this year, it, it was obvious very early that the Rangers were not going to be a very good team. And when that happens, we look for what we call diversionary tactics to try and hold our audience. Yeah. And... <clears throat> Early in the season, uh, the Rangers gave us a, a commercial to read, a live commercial to read, that had a little rhyme at the end of it. Uh, and I read it and I said to my partner, you know, if they're gonna give us little rhymes to read, why don't they give us a limerick? And he said, well, why don't you write one? So I took the commercial copy home and I rewrote it as a limerick. That's great. And I thought that was gonna be the end of it, but as it turned out, in that same game, which was not a very competitive game, the Rangers were getting killed. They were playing the Red Sox. The Red Sox had just brought up one of their big, young hitting prospects from their minor league team, which is at Pawtucket. So my partner, Matt Hicks, said, uh, this young hitting star from Pawtucket. And I said, hey, that sounds like the first line of a limerick. And he said, yeah, I know that limerick. Everybody knows that man, <laughs> limerick you can't read that on the air i said well let's write a clean one with Pawtucket." so by the time the game had ended we had written this clean limerick a young hitting star at Pawtucket, each time up would step into the bucket which is a baseball phrase for a hitter who doesn't have a straight stride toward the pitcher he strides out to the side it's a hitting very common hitting flaw um, so a young hitting star at Pawtucket each time up would step into the bucket. If he got this corrected, 
he'd soon be selected for Cooperstown like Kirby Puckett. Nice. <laughs> and the, the Limerick had a really good reaction, and I posted it on social media, and people really liked it. And I, it just kind of dawned on me, this is it. This is our... This is what we're going to use our diversionary tactic to hold the audience. We'll do a limerick every day. One of us will write a limerick and we'll wait till the eighth inning to read it to try and make the audience stick around. That's great. And then we were a month or two into the season and somebody said to me, you know, you should put these limericks in a book at the end of the year, you know, and sell it. Seemed like a great idea. And then a friend of mine said, hey, I've got an illustrator friend here in Dallas who's a big Rangers fan who I bet would like to illustrate these. So I met with him. Arthur James is his name. And he was real excited about doing it. And so we started working on this project. And now the book is starting to starting to come to fruition. And by Thanksgiving, uh, we'll actually have it available for sale with incredible illustrations. Oh, and it'll have It'll have um, close to 200 limericks in it. About half of them will be illustrated. Yeah. And, I'll put uh, links to it. Money. I'll, yeah. I'll link to it on the on Hey Human podcast so people can, can find it. Yeah, a portion of the money is going to go to the Rangers Charity Foundation, which builds baseball fields in low-income neighborhoods you know, all around the Southwest. Mm-hmm. And it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And you've written a couple other books. I wrote it down. The Man Who Stole First Base. And then a book called The Texas Rangers, and then one, the night Wilt scored 100 points, or just 100 is the, but, yeah. Yeah, I haven't written a book for 20 years um, because it's so much work. <laughs> and in the off-season now, I, I need my chill-out time. Mm. Uh, in fact, this Limerick book is, is severely uh, um, <laughs> compromising my chill-out time in the off-season, but... We should have it done within a month, and uh, I won't have any more work to do. But, yeah, writing books isn't fun for me. The limerick thing just kind of happened. Yeah. And by the, the season, all the limericks were written. I wrote some extra limericks specifically for the book. So a lot of limericks in there that are not about baseball, that I wrote about musicians, or I wrote some about the World Cup when it was going on, and various other things that I've written about. I stayed away from politics. I figured that's that's probably not, not what we need. No, that's its own circus. (laughs) And there actually are some really good limericks on both sides that you can find on Twitter if you're looking for them. Political limericks, Mm -hmm. which I really, I enjoy reading, but I don't, I don't want to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have other things that you get involved with. Mental health too. That's the other thing that, that came up for uh, something that you're a big advocate for. Talk about that a little. Yeah, I am. My, uh, my family and my wife's family both have long histories of depression and, and mental illness. Uh, and so we've done what we can to help out. My wife for many years was a crisis line counselor uh, for an organization in Dallas called Contact Crisis Line. And I did charity concerts for them for a while. Um, I've been involved with a Campaign to Change Direction, which is a, a national organization Uh, working to erase the stigma around Mm -hmm. mental illness. Uh, Here in Texas, there's a a local chapter called uh, uh, Texas State of Mind, and they have a a campaign called OK to Say, which is basically getting famous people and not famous people to do videos saying it's okay to say that I have a mental health issue or someone in my family has a mental health issue. All of this, you know, designed to make people more inclined to talk about it and to get help, which is you know, basically what, you know, what we're all striving for is so that people won't be afraid to say I need help and it won't, you know, it won't get too late. Yeah. And I've been involved in a few of these organizations. You know, I've made, I made a number of speeches and worked with some of the um, suicide and crisis lines uh, here in Texas to help raise money for them, help raise awareness for them as well. Yeah, I think that's a big thing within the sports uh, arena as well because we look at our sports people as you know human superheroes of the things that they're capable of and to understand that they too have mental health stuff going on and if I think if our heroes continue to say hey guess what I'm human and I have this stuff and it's okay to talk about then it will certainly open the door for everyone else no question for a really long time I know within baseball, um, it was just 
thought of as a weakness. You know, if somebody actually, some player actually revealed he was suffering from depression. But there, there's a much greater understanding now, even in the last five or ten years, mm. of depression being an illness that can affect anybody. That it doesn't mean you're weak mentally or soft, you know, as people say in the sports world. You know, it just means your brain chemicals got screwed up and it can happen to anybody. And some people are more prone to it. And the recognition of that is there now largely because of people speaking out. And, you know, it seems every week now some famous athlete reveals that he has suffered from depression or is suffering from depression. And them speaking out about it is the best thing that can happen because it will cause more and more people uh, to actually be willing to say something about it and go get help. Yeah, God, from your lips to God's ears. I hope so. I know that people listening are probably want me to ask this question, which you've probably been asked a gajillion times, but do you have a particular game that you remember announcing that just still to this day stands out? But, you know, it doesn't have to be a winning game. It could be just something where something happened or, you know. Well, there's two things, one on the positive side and one on the negative side. In in 2010, the Rangers, um, for the first time in their history, going back to 1972, won the American League pennant so they could go to the World Series. And that game, which was in our stadium against the hated Yankees, and the final out in which Alex Rodriguez, who had been a Ranger previously, um, struck out to end the game, that single moment is the most emotional moment that I've ever been involved in in my life. I mean, the way that stadium of 50,000 people just exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I couldn't even talk for about a minute. Um, it was just unbelievable. And that moment was followed not that year, but the following year when the Rangers went to the World Series for the second time by the moment where we all thought we had won the World Series, mm-hmm. only to have a fly ball to right field not get caught. Had the ball been caught, the Rangers won the World Series. It didn't get caught. The Rangers went on to lose the World Series. That single game is probably equally memorable as the one that got the Rangers to the World Series in the first place. So those two moments, and you talk to any Ranger fan and they'll give you the same answer, Mm -hmm. are so far and away more significant than any other game they've ever seen. And I've seen a bunch of no-hitters, and I saw the Rangers one night score 30 runs, which is the all-time baseball record for one game. None of those things compare to the moment the Rangers won the pennant for the first time and the game the Rangers did not win the World Series. (laughs) Oh, man. Crazy. It's... um... You know, it's funny, whenever I talk with somebody who I would consider famous, um, what I love, and you are no exception, is that with all this stuff that goes around with your career in and of itself, is all this social activism. And to me, you're going to leave behind this huge legacy obviously, for being the voice of the Texas Rangers, and you're, you're in a Hall of Fame, and like, you, you know, you're a big deal, but you're not leaving stones unturned. I love that. I think that's so incredible, and I hope that the people that listen, it inspires them as well. Yeah, I hope so, too, and that, that is you know, one of the reasons that I do all of the things that I do. You know, I'm not very good at saying no to good causes when they ask me to, even though it cuts back dramatically on my free time and family time and all those things. And and that is the reason as much as anything, because I think we do have to set the example that this is the right way to be in the world, especially those of us who have been blessed and gifted with so much. You know, I have a job that I love doing. You know, I get paid well or I don't have to, you know, worry about money. Uh, everybody close to me, you know, has, has enough to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're lucky enough to live in this country where we have all of the freedoms. You know, I, I go to Cuba and they don't have any of that stuff. You know, they don't have the material things and they don't have the freedom. And, you know, to, to actually be able to show 
know, kids and, and adults alike that we should be giving back as much as we can, mm-hmm. you know, I think is a real responsibility, you know, of all of us who are, you know, in the, in the public eye. Yeah, I, I agree. And thank you for that. Um, tell every, I'm going to put links on, again, on the website so that people can find all the various charities that you're involved in. But just for those that will, you know, maybe driving or whatever and need to hear it, what are some of the websites where people can go and check out what you do? Well, Focus on Teens is the organization in Dallas um, that supports homeless teens who are actually attending schools. This is the first of its kind in the country, too. They provide a drop-in center in the junior high schools and high schools where kids can go a couple of hours before school starts, where they can do their homework or not. Um, They can get food, clothes, school supplies, bus passes, counseling if they they need it. and it's within the public school system. It's focusonteens.org. And then the restaurant I was talking about is called Cafe Momentum. Cafe Momentum.org uh, is the website for them. Those are the two that I've been most involved with. And then nationally, it's um, Campaign to Change Direction is the mental health organization. Um, and within Texas, okay to say um, that I would ask people to go check out. And for uh, anyone that might want to jump uh, into the Cuba situation, how, how did they get to, I, I know that you have a website that is for the music and the adventure in Cuba, what, where can they find that? Well, the, the um, tour company I work with is called Cuba Educational Travel, and they have, they have the trips listed, but if anybody um, just follows me on Twitter, it's Nadel Air, Nadel E-R, or on Instagram, it's Nadel Eric 16 I'm frequently posting links to all of these things, and if you go back on my on my history of posts, you know you'll find um, posts about all of that stuff. Yeah, Eric, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Susan. This was fun. Yeah, it was a real honor and pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to another episode. Don't forget to rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. See you later.